Well, Rachel, it always amazes me when we find an amazing practitioner who suddenly really recognizes either their entrepreneurial spirit or their media desire to be really out there. And I think with speaking with Dr. Heather Hirsch, we really have found that. I feel the guests we have, we should give them either Superman or Wonder Woman or some other appropriate cape when they come on the show, because like you, they're treating patients, they're running businesses, they're trying to move the conversation ahead, they're writing books, they're meeting important people who can help them promote the message. So I think that people will really, it was just so much energy. We talked, it felt like a mile a minute and listened to mile a minute, just keeping up with all the things she's trying to do with such passion for women's health, which that's like mana from heaven for us. Yeah, so let's talk Heather. Welcome to the business of the V. Hello, friends and colleagues. I'm Dr. Alyssa Dweck. And I'm Rachel Braunschirl. Each week, we bring you the most fascinating investors, inventors, entrepreneurs, academics, and healthcare practitioners who are making things happen in women's sexual and reproductive health. If you are a woman, know a woman, have a business, or care about your V health and wellness, fasten your seatbelts and listen in to another informative and inspiring episode. We are so excited to have our guest today, Dr. Heather Hirsch, who is the CEO of Health by Heather Hirsch, in addition to many other hats she wears, which we're excited to learn more about. Welcome, Heather. Thanks for being with us. Oh, I'm so excited. Thank you for having me. So I have to start with a part that is personally important to me but might not be as on task as the rest of the questions. You recently shared a picture where you are standing with Oprah and a best friend, Gail, who yes. I was on my plane three weeks ago. So the first article I ever wrote that got published was called How to Find Your Leadership Voice Because Oprah's is Already Taken. So <laughs> an Oprah fanatic from back in the day. How yeah. did that happen? Was it as great as it seems like it would be? Oh what are you gosh. talking to Oprah about? Oh my gosh. It was greater than you could think it would be. It was greater. It was incredible. So I got a call about mid-February by the producers of on O Daily that would I like to, if I was available, meet with Miss Winfrey for an interview. And I was like, oh, yeah. I'm, I'll cancel I'm, my head. I'm like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm like, of course, there's nothing else. I can clear everything off. And they wanted to have a panel on menopause and midlife. And I knew that it was going to include a lot of the amazing people who were on the panel. So it was Drew Barrymore, Maria Shriver, Oprah, of course, Dr. Sharon Malone, who's great and amazing. Also, Dr. Judith Joseph, a psychiatrist, and then Gail King also. And it was this incredible moment of, is this real? And then it got further. She said, oh, she wants to talk about your book. She wants to talk about Unlock Your Menopause Type, which is my book landing June 6th. So this is literally a dream come true on my vision board. Me talking with Oprah, I went so far as to actually, when I make vision boards, I do them on PowerPoint. And I put my face on someone else's face. <laughs> it was incredible. We talked for about two hours. And finally, the producers were like, okay, we got to move on because Oprah has other interviews to do here. And it was amazing energy. You could hear a pin drop the entire time. It was her first live studio audience in the last three years. And just incredible. She like glides. She just did in. That's what my memory is. She just glided in and she came and gave me a big hug and said, I'm so excited you're here. And I just said, I'm so excited you're talking about this. 
So if we were to stop at this moment, it looks to the world like menopause is everywhere and it's all anybody was talking about. And anybody who's been in this space knows that this is a relatively new phenomenon. And again, you wear so many different hats. You do internal medicine, you focus on menopause, you serve a lot of different roles. You're a speaker, you're an author. From your perspective, why is menopause having its day or its moment or its month or its year right now? I think this is a good question to discuss amongst the three of us. I think it's because of social media, like galvanizing women. I think it's because more women are starting to talk to each other. More women, especially public figures, celebrities, those with large profiles, YouTubers, they're starting to talk about menopause and their menopause experience. And to me, this seems like this has all happened in the last one to two years, maybe the pandemic, enough people were on social media and enough people learned like just talk about whatever you want to talk about in that time. It is not. It is definitely not coming from the medical community. It's not coming from the medical community. So where else is it coming from? Now, there are certain doctors. There's certainly a couple loud, obnoxious doctors like myself, but that is not moving the needle. I really do think it's either social media, which has really softballed this in the sense that it's given people a lot of different places to go to look to other people to learn about their experiences to learn about hormone therapy whatever it might be to be mad and then to advocate and to start nonprofits and to start podcasts and to start so many things I think that's why. But if you have other ideas, I'd love to know what you guys actually think social media really helped because there was so much misinformation that was put out there. And we needed experts like yourself, like us to really write that ship. So I think social media in this particular case, being a little the Wild West, if you will, did us a favor. I think my biggest take on the medical community is we're catching up. And gynecologists used to really own this field. And that is just so no longer the case, which is great. Because I think the internal medicine field brings such a different perspective to causal health. I think the mental health field brings so much to the table. And this is really a very big part of the management strategy when it comes to menopausal symptoms, as we all know. So I think that really we are having a moment and it's and it's a really great thing. Rachel and I have spoken about this where we're wondering where most women are getting their day-to-day care. Is it from their OBGYN? Is it from their internal medicine doctor? Who is mostly managing women's health? And can we do it all together and have fun in the sandbox together? Or is it going to be more of a piecemeal approach in your opinion? Yeah, I do. I think that I have this bias and it could be wrong. But from my point of view, gynecologists, I started my career actually in OBGYN and I did a year and a half and realized I was not a surgeon. Like I told me, I got into surgery and I was just like, wait, how long do I have to stand here? What if I'm hungry? We don't eat. We don't eat in our field. Like I get it. (laughs) Yeah. I had so much anxiety about when I would eat again. Current day, I think our gynecologist training is so heavily focused in obstetrics and surgery because that is so vital. (laughs) And you do not want me taking your uterus out. But 
internists, they are so busy really learning all the complexities of the human body. But then for the pelvic area, that's gynecology. So there, there is like a gray zone. And I don't know how you bridge them. I definitely think that you can because, for example, I love being able to work hand in hand with a gynecologist. For example, when I was at the Center for Women's Health at Ohio State, people would come to see me because they were interested in menopause. And then I would realize they're having bleeding that required biopsy. If they had enough risk factors, a DNC where you have to get put to sleep and you don't want me in the operating room. Or I'd realize they needed a myometry. We don't want you in the ring. Especially if I'm hungry. <laughs> and then, or they needed surgery or they needed something that the surgeon could do, wanted to do. And I love to just sit like I'm sitting now and talk till I'm blue in the face because I love helping people make complex decisions in the arena of we've got plenty of time. So not like we need to do an emergency section. That doesn't give me plenty of time to make decisions. And so there, but again, there is this gray zone where gynecologists know so much about the complexities of females and that hormonal swing, right? Pregnancy, infertility, postpartum, peripartum, and some about menopause and perimenopause. Although again, their training is so focused on obstetrics and surgery. And then internists are so good at knowing how all these 20 different medications interact with each other and your QT prolongation and this and this, but then don't know how to treat a yeast infection. There has to be some kind of gray zone where both of our training could really work together to really create a seamless experience for the patient. And that might be teaching things like gynecologists may be teaching basic procedures like an EMB or endometrial biopsy rather is really quite easy. Or just what are all these medications together? What is their interactions there? What does that mean? Internists are used to prescribing hundreds of different medications. My gynecology colleagues may be like their set of 10 that they like to prescribe or 20 or whatever. There probably is a good place to interact together. And I think if we did more fellowship training around this, that could be really helpful. Yeah, I love this answer. I just want to feed off of that one last question because one limitation, and by the way, I don't want to read EKGs or anything like that. That went by the wayside a very long time ago. So I totally get your point of view. My question is this, one limitation in OBGYN training, and it's a big limitation, is number one in sexual health and number two in hormone therapy. We yeah. really don't get trained in that at all. It is literally on the job training. I yeah. wonder if you see similarities in the internal medicine world because I've trained in expertise as an already practicing physician. So this is such a good question. Gosh, it's a funny question because when I go to answer it, like every stage of my training, I would volunteer to teach as much as I could. And my thought process evolved. Certainly, we know that because of the end of the way that Women's Health Initiative ended in 2002 to 2004, typing really fell off. And then because prescribing fell off, residents never saw attendings prescribe. And so they never could watch in that apprenticeship model and learn how to consult and learn how to answer those complex questions. Got more complex after the W. Even me, I learned in residency, in my internal medicine residency, if you have to use hormone therapy, if you've tried every eye, use the tiniest dose for the shortest time. And then really it was when I was in fellowship at Cleveland Clinic under Dr. Holly Thacker, I realized the safety and the efficacy of 
hormone therapy and have been doing as much as I could to teach on that. Then when I went to Ohio State and then later when I went to the Brigham back in my academic days, I really tried to push to get them a couple hours of education. But a couple hours of education out of three years is a drop in the bucket. Then I don't know how much our OBGYN colleagues are learning in residencies since I myself did not make it past the first year. So maybe you can fill me in on how much training they really get. But I assume it's pretty similar-ish. Here's today's hot flash. For women to have the optimal health care they deserve, they really should be seeing both an internal medicine doctor who has a different perspective on heart, lungs, kidney, liver disease, and all kinds of medical issues, and a gynecologist who really focuses on ecologic care, fertility, reproductive health, sexually transmitted issues, and also hormone therapy. The best is to really glean the best from both worlds to really complete women's health care each year. You both have said so many different things, and I want to bring it back to the first question. Why is the moment now? And part of it, sure, it's social media. It's conversations like these. It's more investments going into women's health. It's women, especially famous women, talking about their menopause, which I consider a combination of social media, a platform, and also having the money to invest and attract other people to invest. I also think with COVID, we started having these conversations. One of my favorite examples of this is the city of New York had as their guidance from the New York City Department of Health, you are your safest sex partner. Uh That was during COVID. Never before in the history of New York City education and probably in the history of US sexual health education has someone said, you know what? masturbating is really the way to go. So you don't <laughs> catch anything. So I think it's a combination. Yeah. I think a combination of these things and mm-hmm. having positions You're right, with a platform like you have and Lisa has to make those connections yeah. is really what's so important. Because if we've learned yeah. nothing in women's health, one thing we've learned is how the pieces put together. It's not just physiological. It's physiological. That doesn't just mean it's female parts. It's all the things that are in the gray area. It's financial. Mm -hmm. It's psychological. The Mm -hmm. whole mental health, I'll call it craze in the most positive way, the, the awareness of mental health that has invaded society and now is part of women's health has helped us make huge leaps when you're Mm -hmm. thinking you can't think about women's health without thinking Mm -hmm. about mental health. Mm -hmm. Just not possible. So there's, I'd like to clone both of you. I do think that the progress happens in connecting people across those gray areas where Alyssa might not want to do an EKG and you might not want to do surgery, but finding a way to figure out who's going to get that done for the benefit of a woman. You're so right. I also think it's crazy to ignore the elephant in the room, which is that starting in the There's so many. Yeah, yeah. I was going to say the financial elephant, right? We know that this is evaluated to be a, I hear $50 billion industry, $80 billion industry, $250 billion industry. Yeah, it keeps going up and up. But it is not just companies that are delivering healthcare. It's companies delivering products, companies delivering digitals, and probably other things that I'm missing. So there definitely is, I think, interest among entrepreneurs to think about this space, venture capitalists to start thinking about this space. And heck, let's say you're a 29-year-old venture capitalist guy, and your mom starts telling you about hot flashes. You start just thinking about it because you're thinking about it. It's just on your mind. 
And that's one of the challenges. It's a downside and an upside. If we need the male venture capitalist to be able to relate to the problem, we're going to miss a lot of investment opportunities. So the example I give is if I were to present to a male venture capitalist, I'm selling this software as a service to help cybersecurity in global military organizations. They can say, hey, that's a good business. I'm never going to be the buyer, but I get that people need that service. With women's health, we're adding that extra hurdle. If it's not personal, to the mm-hmm. VC, can't get over that hurdle, mm-hmm. makes it even harder. And mm-hmm. I've, we've both had, Alyssa and I have both had this conversation, yeah. Alyssa, as an entrepreneur and as a practitioner, where you say, you know what, 43% of women have sexual concerns and difficulties. And they'll be like, you know what, not me, never heard of it. But if you talk about fertility or their mom has hot flashes, which she decides to share with her VC son, then all of a sudden it becomes a real thing. We mm-hmm. have to really get away from this is women's health. And I think we're making great progress because we're talking about it in a much greater context. Mm-hmm. We are big problems, ton of money that people can make a ton of money by providing better solutions. Mm-hmm. All those things are true. I love how you just package it all together. <laughs> You're absolutely right. I think this is a quote from, it was my friend, Lindsay Harper, and she has mm-hmm. the app Rosie. And this is an exact quote from Rosie. And this applies, I think, to a lot of these things. And when asked, who are your customers? She was like, everyone, everyone is my customer right? Because women have sex with either other women or with men. So you're all my customers. And I think that's so true. Menopause is a little bit different. Retiring earlier, if they don't feel well, if they're not treated, they're leaving the workforce, they're changing jobs, their divorces happen because of menopause. And, you know, lawyers are making money off of it. But again, I think it affects everyone. To say that it affects only women is silly, but that's still the narrative that like menopause happens just to women. No, it happens to society because women aged 45 to 55 and even broader, 35 to 65, really running the country. They really should be running the world and uh, because they're just... I hear Beyonce coming on in the background. <laughs> but they're just so skilled. They're so emotionally smart. They're so intellectual. And to have that taken away from you because menopause happens to women, it affects society. It affects everyone in society. I wanted to hone in a little on your personal journey because I wondered if you took the traditional path where you were seeing patients or in academia, which it sounds like, of course you were. And how did you springboard to these other endeavors, which are so exciting and so useful? Oh, what a great question. It's funny. I fell in love with midlife women's health care during my fellowship training at Cleveland Clinic, which is 2014. And because it's so complex, I was a women's studies major in college. I dual majored in women's studies. And so it's going never in a million years that I think I was going to become a menopause doctor. But looking back now, it all makes sense. Like retrospectively, I love taking care of women in midlife. It's so satisfying. Women are so fascinating. I learned so much from my patients. Each patient's so unique, so different, has different biases, has different preferences, comes in with different stories. And so I always say I like to fix the Rubik's Cube for each person. The thing with that is it takes a lot of time. And one thing that I don't have is time. My time is my most valuable resource. And so there was always a limit on how many women I could see, let's say in a day in a clinic. So in 2018, on my second maternity leave, I started my own podcast and I used to upload episodes to SoundCloud. In fact, it wasn't even a podcast. It was just audio bits for my patients because they'd come in and they would say, oh, Dr. Hirsch, I'm having hot flashes, but my mom had breast cancer. So I know I can't take hormone therapy. Now, again, actually, this was 20, 2016, 2017. So I'm answering these same questions every day. Going back to something either we had said earlier in the show, which is that there were so many misconceptions, right? And I was like, that's not a reason you can't 
use hormone therapy. Just, oh, that was so much to unpack. So I said, what can I do to lessen this burden? Also, I'm going to burn out. If I burn out, then instead of helping my, my measly 10 people a day, I help zero people a day. So then I started uploading these, trying to be a little innovative and think outside the box. So I was like, go listen. Here's my SoundCloud link. Like I'm Billie Eilish or something. Go listen to myths about hormone therapy, right? And then they would say, oh, I heard that vaginal estrogen isn't safe for breast cancer survivors. No, it is. So I said, okay, I uploaded that to SoundCloud. And then I thought, okay, I'll just make it a podcast. So I thought I was like the most innovative doctor. Lots of doctors had podcasts, even in 2017, 2018. And then I started making courses for people because so many people would ask me questions on Instagram and you can't really give direct medical advice. Then women were curious. So I was like, okay, I'll make a YouTube channel and just answer more questions. This innovative process kept going. I kept trying to think, how can I whittle down the time it takes? Or how can I give women hours of information, but really only have 30 minutes with them? So I just kept going on this innovative spree. Now, it's not that innovative to make YouTube videos. But for academic medical centers, this is pretty wild stuff. Like sending people a link to YouTube is like pretty mind blowing, especially my patients. Anyways, all that is to say that it started to grow this brand of just me. And along the way, one of my most valuable lessons was just, and it's the same old cliche thing we all hopefully learn at some point, which is just embrace who you are. So easy to say all along the way, I'm trying to do research and do IRBs. And I was like, oh, I should get this K award. I should get an NIH funding. I should and make YouTube videos and be a mom and write a book and blah, 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 blah. We get it. Yeah, we all do. And then I finally realized what I really like is just sitting in front of a microphone, speaking the way I speak. And I speak this way to patients and I speak this way to my kids. And it's great because I can just be the same person in different scenarios. Now I can move it around a little bit. I can speak to clinicians versus lay women versus know when not to swear and when to swear. But it's so nice to just be embrace your authentic self, which ultimately meant eventually just wanted to leave academics so that I could remove a lot of the red tape and the steps to just do the things that I wanted to really help my patients and help more women. As opposed to having every sentence you said go through a regulatory approval process or that comes in the academic center. What's so interesting when you talk about your authentic self and your energy literally is palpable and jumps through the screen, the joy that you have. There are folks that we're meeting in the course of this journey, and Alyssa is one of them, and you're clearly one of them, who are literally reconnecting with the joy of taking care of people. Because yeah. I think during COVID, and I'm speaking as a patient, not as a patient, <laughs> have a lot of a lot of my husband's family are physicians. Physicians, it's gotten so hard to be a physician. There's so many demands on you and you have to it's, learn skills that you never thought. And you have to run a business and you have to deal with insurance and you don't have enough time. And to your point, you have to take care of you because you're an important asset also. So I love that you're building a business and building a platform based on really loving what you intended to do, which was yeah. help people yeah. get answers to questions. And maybe it's because of the age at which you graduated from medical school. Well, this was the time to use these channels to really communicate in a very efficient way in ways that, again, COVID, I think, accelerated. We couldn't see doctors. So we had to talk to them on the phone. Yeah. So we got used to it. Yeah. Maybe we couldn't even get a telehealth appointment.
appointment. We have to watch videos. It's a lot of necessity as the mother of invention, finding new solutions. But this idea of how time-starved, and I talked to Alyssa a lot about this, how time-starved physicians are and how crushing it is not be able to give your patients the care that you went into this field to do. That's what I'm so enjoying about doing this with Alyssa and hearing about the many things she's working on now and the way you talk about it. I like yeah. sitting in front of a microphone, yeah. talk about women's health, and I don't want to do any surgery. So here's yeah. my business. You're so, so right. Other than ha- hanging out with Oprah, what yeah. comes down the pipe for you? Not that hanging out with Oprah is not enough. <laughs> By the way, I would consider that the pinnacle and retire the next day. Absolutely. <laughs> what, yeah, where what? do you go after that? No, so, I don't know. Plan? I would love to manifest like a series thinking how incredibly immersive this two-hour panel was. And we just scratched the surface. We scratched the surface. And when Oprah talks, it's business. This is, I don't know what level you get past Oprah wanting to sit down and talk about a topic. I don't know. I think God is after that. Yeah, I think so. And it's amazing. I knew we had questions that we had from patients in the audience on vaginal dryness, sexual health. We didn't even get there. Two hours in, we didn't even get there to questions that were not planted, but planned. I have a book coming out June 6th. I am potentially working on another book, which is perimenopause. I am starting my own business and I have lots and lots of ideas on. I never stop with ideas. And I think that this entrepreneurial spirit of mine has always been deep down there and now really letting her loose. It's really incredibly fun and feels so good to finally say, I'm going to work for me and I believe in me. And so those are all the things you can find me on my social media platforms. I'm at Heather Hirsch MD everywhere. And my website is heatherhershemd.com. I know it's so boring, but that's where I am if you want to find me. And I think there's so much. We could talk for hours on the topic of midlife women's health and business and just how interesting and intricate and complex and intertwined all these things are. So I would also love to be back sometime if you want, but thank you for having me. Fantastic. What's the name of your book? My book is called Unlock Your Menopause Type. And I talk about six different phenotypes that I see. You know how I told you I love to Rubik's Cube and solve each person? I couldn't do that in a book. So I use the six most common things that I see. Keep up amazing work. We love watching all the things that you're doing and the passion and energy and progress that you're bringing to the space. Thank you for spending time with us today. Thanks for having me. Don't forget, subscribe to our podcast at businessofthev.com for the latest trends and trendsetters in women's health and business.